The New Testament reading is taken from Ephesians chapter 5, verses 15 to 21. Look carefully then how you walk, not as unwise, but as wise, making the best use of the time, because the days are evil. Therefore, do not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. And do not get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit, addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody to the Lord with your heart, giving thanks always and for everything to God the Father, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray again. Father, as we approach today your most holy word, we acknowledge today that it is your word and we submit to its authority. And we depend now upon your Holy Spirit to make clear the things that you've written to us. And under his inspiration and under his power, may that word now come to us sharper than any two-edged sword. May it pierce even to the dividing asunder of soul and spirit and joint and marrow. And may it discern the thoughts and the intents of our hearts so that we may run in the way that you have set before us, the way of your salvation. And so God, sanctify us and cleanse us now we pray. And may the words of my mouth and the meditation of all of our hearts, may they be acceptable in thy sight, O Lord, our rock, and our Redeemer, for we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, we continue today to look at Ephesians chapter 5 and this passage that continues to unfold Paul's ethic of the Christian life. What does it look like uh, to be a believer? What does it look like to be a follower of Jesus? And Paul has had some very specific things to say, especially in light of his his uh, statement that the days in which we live, they are, they are evil, plain and simple. And therefore, we must, as God's people, redeem our time. Speaking of time, on Friday night, just this last Friday, we had a family movie night. Once in a while, we like to, uh, to gather together and watch a film. And we watched a movie called Trolls. This is a new animated feature. And uh, now I'm of Norwegian pedigree, so thinking about trolls comes easy to me. <laughs> it has a kind of a cultural significant, uh, significance. Um, but the, the, the movie was painful to watch. It was outright painful. Those of you fathers who've watched movies with your kids, you know what this is like. Uh, I found it was, it was saccharine and sticky and sweet in all the wrong ways. And it was, uh, I had to kind of grit and bear it. But, but what, 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 what made it far worse was uh, a decidedly uh, insidious message. It was the film's thesis. I talked to my students a lot at the university about, about locating a thesis. And I had to sit down with my kids after the film and, and try to help them think about the, the underlying and the the essential message of the film, what was controlling it, which was this, in so many words. Happiness, the film said, is not something you obtain from without. 
Happiness can only be discovered from within. Happiness is an experience, it's a treasure that you find in the vault of your own soul. Most people have been rightly instructed that you can't find happiness in things. You can't find contentment in money. You can't find it in accomplishments. You can't find it in possessions. You can't find it in thrills. We all know this. Heather and I watched an equally, uh, or another movie uh, recently, this time without the kids, and where the other one was, was, was impoverished, this one was decidedly rich, although I found it was uh, very eviscerating. It was a film called There Will Be Blood, and it's a story about this downward spile of an oil tycoon, and it's powerful, if not permanently scarring, uh, in its illustration of the vanity of things and the inability of money to produce happiness. And most people nowadays understand that. That's not too hard to sell, even if they don't live by it. Things don't satisfy it, even though you try, you try, and you try, and you try. You can't get no satisfaction. Hey, 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 that's what we say. Most people will uh, readily admit that. But if they admit that, cult, that, that happiness can't be found in things, Culture is far less content to acknowledge the truth that happiness is not found within. It's not buried in some vault in my soul. Happiness is not in the pursuit of some interior treasure. And our text this morning addresses this matter directly. Happiness, Paul writes, is not found in the individual. Fulfillment, he says, is not found within, but it's found without. You, says Paul, you are empty and you need to be filled. Be filled, he writes to the church at Ephesus, be filled with the Holy Spirit of God. You are weak and you need to be made strong. You are poor and you need to be made rich. You are dark and you need to be made of light. You, in fact, are radically insufficient and you are dependent upon something else to realize your humanity. You are dependent upon someone else. Be filled, Paul says, with the Spirit of God. And my brothers and sisters, deep calls to deep, and the depths of the human heart, they yearn to be filled with the deeper things of God. As A.W. Tozer writes, at the far hidden center of man's being, there is a bush and it is fitted to be the dwelling place of the triune God. There God planned to rest and to glow with moral and with spiritual fire. But we in our folly refuse again and again the only thing that can make us glow and burn. And we constantly look to other things, even to our own selves. And so before Paul can speak to the need of being filled with the Spirit of God, he's compelled to address another problem in the church that's serious enough to warrant Paul's attention. Don't be drunk with wine, he says to these Christians. Well, the, the, the less noble part of me asks what these Ephesians were up to. <laughs> what were they doing at their agape feasts, exactly? 
sipping saints, as one called them. Well, they must have been some real carnal folk, we say, for Paul to have to address it like this. And it's very easy for us to look down our long Christian noses at these Ephesians. But the truth is, and I say this with all seriousness, drunkenness is not very far from any one of us. And scripture is very clear that some of God's best servants fell victim to this very thing. You'll remember back with me in Genesis 6. The Lord looked out on the world and he saw how great the wickedness of humanity had become. He saw that the inclination of all the thoughts of all their hearts were only towards evil. But there was one notable exception. There was one man, his name was Noah. Noah, we read, was a righteous man. Noah was a blameless man in his generation and in his time, we read. Noah, we, we read, walked with God. And the story of Noah is remarkable. I mean, it's remarkable that amidst all this denseness to God, Noah is receptive. And it's a story of incredible courage of one man and incredible obedience and holy fear. And it's a story of an amazing deliverance of a man and his family who dared to trust God in the midst of great opposition and no doubt much mocking in his culture. But I love the honesty of scripture. I love the way that it speaks truthfully and the account here is sobering, pardon the pun, no sooner is Noah delivered from this great trial at sea. No longer does Noah, no sooner does he see the terrible consequences of sin. You can imagine Noah, his, his ears still having the echo of all the desperate wails of those who are drowning in the waves. You can imagine Noah in his eyes, his mind's eye, still seeing all those clawing at the door once God had shut the gate. Still, those sounds and sights within him, Noah, safe on dry ground, builds a vineyard. And then Noah drinks his wine. And then Noah gets drunk. And he, this great man of faith, forgets God. And as the wine went in, writes the old Puritan, his wit went out. And as his wit went out, his clothes went off. And righteous Noah's drunkenness reintroduces into the world the curse. And Noah helps to destroy the life of his own son, Ham. What a frightful lesson this is. That not one of us is beyond causing incalculable harm to our children or to the world. The best of us are a hairbreadth away from participating in the destruction of our loved ones. The best of saints, scripture says, can fall victim to drunkenness and drunkenness will inevitably and invariably result in some form of evil. And the reason is just this. Among other things, drunkenness not only loosens our robes, as it did with Noah, but drunkenness loosens our tongue. And the tongue, as James tells us, is not to be trusted on the best of our days. It's hard enough to tame the tongue when we have our wit about us. But with just enough of that conversation moistener, we take this world of iniquity, 
This tongue, as James calls it, and we, we set fire all around us without even knowing what we're doing. When we are drunk, writes Calvin, whatever comes to the tip of our tongue, out it goes, be it right or be it wrong. And so Paul says to us today with his apostolical authority, do not get drunk with wine. He doesn't say don't drink, you'll notice. Otherwise, the Lord's making wine at Cana could make no possible sense to us. Scripture affirms very clearly that alcohol is God's gift. Psalm 104.25, wine to gladden the heart of man oil to make his face shine, bread to strengthen man's heart. Wine can warm, wine can cheer, wine can make us merry. When we were in Toronto, Heather and I used to watch this show called The Thirsty Traveler. And The Thirsty Traveler was a show about one man who toured the world's vineyards and the world's breweries and the world's distilleries. And uh, the guy was a bit of a, he was a bit of a fool, the, the host, um, but the, the culture that he explored was, was worthwhile. And one episode of The Thirsty Traveler was particularly memorable for me. Uh, the host had led us as his audience to a Perry producer. Perry's a... It's like, a, it's like a cider made from, from pears. And uh, after the host had been led through the facility and he arrived at the place where they could taste the product, the host made some kind of crash, crass and juvenile comment about, about getting, getting kind of befuddled and drunk by the cider in this, this Welsh Perry cidery. And the owner stopped and he cocked his head and still with his glass on his hand, he looked at the host and he said, merriment, not drunkenness. And the host started to sputter and he didn't know what to say. <laughs> and the scriptural injunction is just the same to us today. God's gift is for merriment. It is not for drunkenness. And there's a line by brothers and sisters that you're not permitted to cross. There is a line that you are not permitted to cross and you must know and you must be absolutely certain where that line is, and you must be wary of that next drink, lest it lead you down the wrong, drunken path. Black and white, my brothers and sisters, do not be drunk with wine, but be filled with the Holy Spirit. And so Paul now comes to the life-giving truth that to be happy, to be complete, we need to be filled with something that can fill us with inexhaustible pleasure. Wine we can only drink with moderation. We can only drink so much wine before it leads us into folly. Paul says, I think here, we've been constructed in such a way that we crave everlasting drafts of something and not something, but someone. You need, says Paul, to be filled with something that can't run the risk of excess. Your soul, he says, is made to be filled with the continual. Your soul has been made to be filled with the evermore. Your soul has been constructed to be filled with the everlasting. Be filled with the Holy Spirit. And so what I want you to note, first of all today, is the note of personal responsibility here. What Paul is doing is giving the church a command. 
The chance is in the, in the Greek text, is in the present imperative. And he is charging the church to be filled continuously, ongoing with the Spirit of God. That is to say, you have a part to play in this. You have a responsibility here. It's not something that's going to happen automatically on the basis of believing the gospel, on the basis of being united to Jesus. Otherwise, there'd be no sense of the command here at all. We're not commanded to be justified. Well, that's being done once and for all. But we are commanded to be filled with the Holy Spirit. Nor can we rest that this is something or trust that this is something that's happened in the past as a sufficient experience. We're not permitted to say, I was born again and I received all that I need of the Holy Spirit. That's simply not permitted to us. Nor can we say I had a subsequent experience when I was filled with the Spirit and now I have the Spirit and I need seek the Spirit no more. That's not allowed to us either. We must seek, Paul says, more and more of the life-giving, sanctifying presence of the Holy Spirit in our lives. And we're given a command. You must do this which means that we can obey or we cannot obey. We can live lives that crave the presence of God and doing those things that fill us with his empowering presence, or we can spend our lives with little thought about the divine imperative. You be filled with the Spirit of God. And so the obvious question today for those of us who want to obey is how do we do it? It's one thing to be commanded, it's another to know how to respond. It's not like God's a tap that we can turn on and fill our vessels at will. It's not like God's a, a coffee maker that we can program to fill the carafe of our souls at a certain time every day. And so how then do we respond to Paul's command? Be filled with the Holy Spirit. Well, the answer you'll see lies in verses 19 to 21. Paul gives us a string of participles and participial phrases uh, in verses 19 to 21 that modify the imperative. They explain the imperative. They teach us what the imperative means. This is just the same as with the Great Commission, where the imperative the command to go and to make disciples of all nations is modified by the participles that follow, baptizing and teaching. How do we make disciples? How do we go out into the world? We do so by baptizing and by teaching them. And so here in Ephesians, the participles that follow not only describe the subsequent life of the Spirit, but they map out our path to it. The participles tell us how to be filled. I don't want to dismiss in any way the dramatic importance of seeking God in private prayer, but Paul does not say here, be filled with the Spirit, finding some isolated spot in the woods. Paul doesn't say, be filled with the Spirit, going off on your own. And if you recall with me, when the apostles were first filled with the Spirit, they weren't on their own. They were all together, we read, in one place. Paul doesn't say, be filled with the Spirit on your own. Rather, he says, be filled with the Spirit, what? Speaking to one another. Be filled, singing together. 
Be filled giving thanks together. Be filled submitting to one another and meeting each other's needs out of your love and out of your reverence for Christ. In short, Paul says, as you strive to build a community that is enthusiastically fixed upon the glory of the Father and fixed upon the glory of the Son, as you make your words together about God's words to you, then the glory of the Spirit, Paul says, will increasingly be added to and poured out upon you. And as this happens, as that spirit is given, and then you'll find that the Godwardness, the heavenly mindedness, the joyful, self-denying service to your brothers and sisters, the experience of the church, it will become increasingly more satisfying to you, increasingly more ravishing to you, increasingly more sweet than any wine the world has to offer. Don't be drunk with wine, Paul says. Rather be filled with the Spirit. How? Addressing one another in psalms, in hymns, in spiritual songs, singing and making melody to the Lord with all of your heart, your whole lives, all of your attention, all of your energy, all of your gifts and devotions. Paul says, come together and be deliberately about God when you do so. Make it your aim and your intention, whether you're at coffee, whether you're at table, whether you're in the pub, whether you're fixing your neighbor's car or sink, in Sunday worship, let all of it be characterized by rising, wafting attention to God. And so, he says, the Spirit will be poured out upon you and this sweet devotion to the Lord will increase. And it will expand in ways that you could not have anticipated. A.W. Tozer wrote that we are as filled with the Holy Spirit. We are filled with as much of the Holy Spirit as we want to be. And so my prayer for us as a church, as we hear the apostles' words today, that he would grant to each of us here more hunger for his Holy Spirit more a sense that we are not completed on our own, and more commitment to be together for the gospel, and more faith to believe that as we do so, God will not withhold the good gift of his Holy Spirit from us. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.